But we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians, and um, this is our fourth week in this study, and uh, we're in chapter 4. And so one of the things that we've highlighted through 1 Corinthians and now 2 Corinthians is that it was years before that Paul the Apostle is on a missionary journey, and as he's traveling around, he comes to the, the country of Greece and this one particular town of Corinth. And so Paul goes to Corinth, and it's very, very different than, say, Israel or Jerusalem, which would have a very monotheistic background and an Old Testament background. This is a very pagan background. They have no Bible background whatsoever. And so Paul goes to this town, and he just begins. And one of the things we find in, in the book of Acts, now the book of Acts is, is the history book of the New Testament. It tells the story of what happened. So as Paul goes to Corinth, again, very pagan, no Bible background, there in your outline, it just gives his ministry method. It says, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, and I want you to underline where it says, teaching them the word of God, teaching them the word of God. Now remember, they did not come from a Bible background. It's after that, after that year and a half, that Paul hands the church off to another pastor, and he continues on his missionary journey. They have a pastor, then they have another pastor, and several years go by, and as, as time goes by and Paul hasn't been there, there's a number of influences that begin to come into the church. A number of teachers begin to arrive, and Paul's going to deal with them because we're going to find out that they are false teachers, and they're coming into the church, and they're teaching and doing things very strange, things that Paul would never teach or do. And one of the things that, that we've highlighted over the last couple of weeks is that in their teaching strange things, they're beginning to discredit Paul as an apostle, as, as a minister. They're discrediting his teaching. And uh, one of the things that they'll be saying, and we'll, we'll talk about this as, as we travel through, is they'll say something like, you know, if Paul's such a great man of God, why is it everywhere he goes, he gets arrested, he gets beat up? It doesn't seem like God's really blessing his life. And so why would you listen to a guy like that? Listen to our teaching. So Paul, as, as this takes place, um, Paul begins to respond to that, and we've been looking at Paul's response to the things that are going on in the church at this time. Well, it was last week we looked at one verse, which was in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, and I put it on your outline, and Paul says, now we are not like many. The idea is that something's going on in the church, this is not who we are, but this is what's happening. He says, we are not like many peddling the word of God. And last week when we looked at that verse, we looked at the word peddle, which means to, to be a retailer. I've actually put the definition right there, to be, to be a retailer or to peddle, that is to sell something. So Paul hears about what's going on in the church, and he realizes that these teachers are coming in, and they're looking at the congregation, and they're saying, what do you think these people, what do you think they want to hear? What, what, if you're a retailer, you look at your market, and you say, what are these people going to buy, and that's what we're going to sell. So that's what's taking place, and Paul says, we didn't do it that way. One of the things that we didn't highlight last week, we kind of went over it, but there in that verse it says, we are not like many, and that word in the original language, many, can also be translated as mostly or largely. The idea that you get from that is that Paul looks at his style of ministry versus what's coming into the church, and he realizes the way that I do things is the minority of what's being done, but the, what they're doing is creating all kinds of, of problems. I find that interesting. He says that, that word... Uh, we're not like so many because that word again means largely or mostly. And I find it interesting that when the Bible talks about the last days, for instance, in 
Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask three questions. Two of those questions are very simply, uh, when it, what is the time, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The sign of your coming, the sign of the end of the age. So, so tell us about that. And one of the things that Jesus says as a sign, he begins to lay out, these are the things that will be taking place just before I come back. But one of the things that he says, and I put this there in your outline, he says, in that time, it says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So the idea is that the last days will not be filled with great teaching, great ministry, but it's going to be filled with great um, a number, large number of false teachers, false prophets, and they're going to be misleading others. So uh, as as we think of that today, today in chapter four, and the reason that's so important uh, to me is because I want to make sure that that we are never that that kind of place that's misleading in any way. So chapter four today, as Paul continues, he's talking about how he does ministry versus how the false teachers, the false apostles who are coming into the church would be doing things. So hopefully as we get into this, it's going to reframe our understanding of ministry and what ministry is to be like. So we're going to come to a couple of places where Paul's going to say, we did it like this, and the idea is that because the false teachers are doing it like this over here. Uh, he'll say, we didn't do this, and that's because they are doing that. So you've got to keep that in mind as, as we travel through. So last week we began, or we ended at chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3. We're going to pick it up today in, in chapter 4, verse 1. But I've put there on your outline the last verse of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, and, and the reason for that is, uh, well, well, we'll just read it. We, we, were, we looked at it last week. It says, and we who with unveiled faces, and I put this on your outline, all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed. And of course, we looked at that word last week, metamorpho, where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's a process. It's a change. We're being transformed, and I want you to underline, into his likeness, into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that's the very last verse of chapter 3. Then you come to chapter 4. Now, there, was no ch- there were no chapter and verses in the original writing. This is just simply the next line. So Paul says, you know, so we, we with unveiled faces are being transformed into his likeness. Then the very first word of chapter 4 is going to be the word therefore. How many of you have the word therefore? It's the very first word. Now the reason that's so important is what Paul is saying. Anytime you see the word therefore, you always want to ask, what is it therefore? But it's typically therefore to say, based upon what I've just said, this is what you need to know. So when he says therefore, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. The ministry that he says that we have, therefore, is based upon verse 18. In verse 18 that we just looked at in chapter 3, he talks about how this ministry is a ministry where we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Does everybody see that? So we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Therefore, this is the ministry that we have been given. The ministry is to transform people into the likeness of Christ. The ministry is not to teach us to um, win back America or to be better Americans. It's not to teach us how to be rich. It's not to teach us all of these other things that, that are wonderful and we're all very, very passionate about. 
The ministry, the purpose of the ministry is to make us more like Christ. Does that make sense? Hopefully I didn't mess that up too bad. So this is going to be a whirlwind study today. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We do not lose heart. So that's the ministry that we have. Now I put verse 1 from the Living Translation there on your outline. And it says, And so, since God in his mercy has given us this wonderful ministry, we never give up. And I want you to underline, we never give up. So we don't peddle the ministry, we don't peddle the word of God, but God has given to us this wonderful ministry. He even says, given us this wonderful ministry. So one of the things that we're going to find as we look at the authentic minister and the authentic ministry is the first thing that, that Paul's going to tell us, and I want you to write this down, is that the authentic minister recognizes that the ministry is received from God. It's something that God has given to somebody. It, it, it's a calling. It's a calling. And so Paul, Paul here is writing to a group of people who have questioned his motives, they've questioned his leadership, they've questioned his calling, and, and they are, at this point, as Paul is writing this and he's combating some things going on, they think that they are now, uh, that there's something right about them and wrong about Paul, and so they're pointing out the error of what they think of uh, the error of Paul's ways. And again, they're going to be saying things like, you know, Paul, if you're really a man of God, why, why are you having all of these problems, all of these troubles? I mean, I just think they had this belief that if you follow the Lord, everything would just work out. And so that can be very discouraging. And so Paul says, now God's given us this ministry. And uh, in my translation, it says we do not lose heart. In the Living Translation, it says we never give up. So the first thing they recognize is the ministry is from God. And, and the second thing, an authentic minister uh, never gives up. Go ahead and write, write that down. Does not quit when discouraged. Does not quit when discouraged. By the way, for every five people who go into the ministry this year in five years, only one person will actually be in the ministry because it's not typically what people think it is when they go in. And uh, God has a way of leading people through a, a, a very, very difficult time in ministry, and he clarifies the calling. And, and many people realize, I wasn't really called in the first place. But when you're called, you can't quit just because things get, become difficult. So that's, that's the second thing that we notice. It doesn't quit when discouraged. Well, I've put verse 2 on your outline as Paul clarifies what authentic ministry is. I put it from the King James Version. We're going to read it from that, that translation just so that we're all reading the same thing as we unpack this, as Paul's defining for us what an authentic ministry or minister looks like. He says there in your outline, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now remember, Paul is writing, saying, here's who we are. This is not what I'm seeing taking place in the church. So I want to unpack this very quickly. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important at least to highlight as we go through. The first thing that he says is that we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Everybody see that in that verse? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to say it like this. We'll say it like the authentic minister is never two-faced. Write that down. Never two-faced. We're not publicly this way, privately another way. We are who we are. There's nothing to hide. 
the false teachers, on the other hand, apparently have not renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. They're trying to cover up their true motives with a, maybe a false uh, a veneer of piety uh, of some sort. So that would be the first thing. You know, we're, we're not two-faced. We are who we are. Apparently they weren't. Then he says, not walking in craftiness. This is one of my favorites. The word craftiness there in your outline, I won't try to pronounce it, but it means trickery, cunning, craftiness. And uh, the best way that I could say this, and you might have a better way to say it, but, but I would say that, that authentic ministry or the authentic minister is gimmick-free. Gimmick-free. Go ahead and write that down. Gimmick-free. Not using any antics to... to to motivate you, not doing anything to uh, kind of move you in this direction. As, uh, as you know, I've, 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 been, I've been a minister for a long time. I've been around the church block, and so I've seen some things. And um, so when, when you think about gimmicks and, and things that, that churches do, some, some things, I want to be very careful what I say because I don't want to take the shot at any other church, but, uh, but I could. But but I, I've seen some things, like, for instance, there was this one church where the pastor came out and said, if we raise this amount of money, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the middle of the auditorium, we're going to set up a wrestling ring, and me and the associate pastor, we're going to dress up and we're going to wrestle in church on Sunday morning. Well, they raised the money everybody wanted to see. I think it's creepy to see your pastor in wrestling, wrestling tights, you know. But, but that would be an antic. Now, I, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I would feel very uncomfortable doing that, that, that type of gimmick in, in church. One of the guys that I, I have a strong appreciation for, I could, he does it, it's great for me, it would be sin. But, but he's, he's a great guy, great theology. Um, they don't do a whole lot of Bible teaching in church. Every once in a while there, there's, there's a verse, he would disagree with that, but but this one time they were talking about overcoming challenges and so that he thought the way to dramatically drive this point home is they put a line from the back of the church all the way at the ceiling all the way down. He put on a Superman suit and he flew down to, to the stage. And, and it works for him. Now, to me, that's the type of gimmick that I would feel very, very weird about. And I know that God would never let me do that. God would make it so that that, that cord broke halfway through. He'd say, you are not doing that. That is not how you're going to do it. So, so I would say gimmick three. There's no craftiness. We're not trying to work this up in any way. Then, then it says, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. It, depending on your translation, some of your translations would say distorting the word of God or adulterating the word of God. And here it says handling the word of God deceitfully. There in your outline from Vines, I, I've taken their definition or their explanation, and it says to, the word means there in the outline, uh, I, I won't pronounce it, means to corrupt, especially by mingling, underline mingling, the truths of the word of God with false doctrines or notions. Now, when you mingle something, you always dilute it. So if I take a, a glass of milk and the glass is half full and I pour water in it, it's going to dilute the milk. It, it always does that. Paul says we never diluted. We, we never mingled the word of God with something else. So we didn't go to pop psychology, pop philosophy, pop culture, and try to mingle that in with the word of God. We were just very, very straightforward with the word of God. And so go ahead and, and write this down. I would say that, that um, authentic ministry, based upon what Paul is saying here, doesn't mix or water down the word for the audience. It's the word is always the word. We're, we're never twisting scripture. We, we all know the story of how 
when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan comes to Jesus, and the first thing that he begins to do is to quote Scripture. And yet he twists the Scripture, so Jesus has to say, no, that's not really in context. And Jesus puts it back in context. Satan will always twist Scripture to create a, a false teaching. And false teachers will create false teaching, and they'll always use Scripture. Paul says we were very, very straightforward with the Word of God. That's just what we did. So we, we, we didn't do that. And then he says, but by manifestation, the last part of that little verse, he says, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience and uh, in the sight of God. Now, when it says every man's conscience, the word conscience there, again, it's in the Greek. I won't try to pronounce it, but it just means moral consciousness. Now, what this means is when we commend ourselves to every man's conscience, that doesn't mean that every man likes what we're doing or agrees with what we're doing. But the idea is that an authentic ministry, and you want to write this down, will remain morally blameless, morally blameless. That's the idea that nobody could look at Paul's ministry and say, look at what you're doing. I mean, you know, you're all, all you know, on and on and on. Uh, but there was nothing that they could point to. However, as Paul is making that, that statement, if you've been with us as we've traveled through 1 Corinthians and now 2 Corinthians, you will remember that much of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter, was writing against the moral things that he's seeing in the church. One of the things was there was a man who was having an ongoing relationship with his father's wife. Another time, Paul has to say, you have to stop sleeping with prostitutes. Uh, apparently, they'd missed that one. And uh, then another time, he's having to deal with the moral situation there with just the people in the church. Where did that come from? Well, it didn't come from Paul's teaching, but apparently, after Paul left, other teachers began to come in. They began to talk about things like freedom in Christ, which you have, but freedom in Christ does not mean that we have the freedom to be immoral in, in any way. Does that make sense? So, so Paul says, we didn't do that. We operated in moral blamelessness. And we've, we've all, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you've seen what, what, takes, what takes place. And uh, so there's, we could tell stories after story, but the authentic stays away from that and operates in moral blamelessness. Verses 3 and 4, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, and I've underlined the word veiled, and I've also underlined in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds, blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There, there's a lot there that, that we could talk about. But, but uh, suffice it to say that, that the authentic minister understands that this is a spiritual battle. I want you to go ahead and write that down, that this is a spiritual battle. Paul describes it as a blindness. He says that their minds have been blinded, so, so they can't see. It's not about dressing it up to make it so that they can see. It's a blindness, it's a veil. The veil has to be removed in order for somebody to see spiritually. It, it's very common in church world to, to say things like, um, we're, we're going to 
as a church, we don't want you to bring your Bibles because that can be offensive to non-believers. So, so everybody doesn't bring a Bible next week. If we use a verse, we'll put it on the screen. And uh, so certainly they do that. And then we're going to start every week with a secular song so that we can show just how, you know, we're, we're, we're all the same. And I'm not opposed. Okay, I'm opposed to that. So <laughs> who, am I, who am I kidding, right? <laughs> so I, I don't think those things are necessarily evil. God would kill me if I did that. But, but, but the, the thing is, dressing it up doesn't make somebody less blind. If they're spiritually blind because there's been a veil spiritually that's been put over their eyes, that veil has to be removed. Dressing it up or marketing it better doesn't take away that veil. Does that make sense? Okay. So a couple of things. Um, So later on in this book, when we get to chapter 11, Paul's going to tell us how they become blind. There in your outline, he says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived... By the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So one of the things that Satan does in the the mind of the unbeliever is to bring about deception so that they can't see. And uh, apparently he tries to bring about deception in the lives of the believers so that we also find ourselves moving into a blindness, not losing our salvation, but but not seeing what we need to see. Verse 4, he says, in whose case... The God of this world has blinded the minds. When it talks about the God of this world, that's an important phrase that, that you'll hear people say, if God's such a loving God, why does he allow earthquakes? Why, why does he allow famines? Why do bad things happen to good people? One of the things that we find in Scripture is that, that there is the God of this world. It's the little g, not the big g. And so he is doing his work, and it's very contrary to the work of God, who is capital G. So Paul says he brings blindness, um, he's deceiving. And in John, uh, 1 John chapter 5, here's what it says. There in your outline, it says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So here's what this means. It means that you and I right now, we are living in what we would call enemy territory. And and it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back for us. We live in enemy territory. So what's blinded? Verse 4, he says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds. So go ahead and write that down. The mind is blinded. And since their mind is blinded, here's what this means. You want to write this down. That tells us that they won't be won by a better argument. Have you ever argued anybody into a relationship with Jesus? Have you ever tried to do that on Facebook? Has that ever worked? And, and, and you see people that do that on Facebook? Not, not that we're on Facebook, but, but you know, so you hear things. But we don't typically win people by a better argument. So how are they won? Well, I don't think that they're won by, by a better argument. I don't think people are won by dressing it up, better marketing. Now, on on the other hand, let me say this. I I also think that we always have to be careful how we communicate. I I think if you're trying to do church the way it was done in the 1950s, you're going to lose a certain amount of effectiveness. You know, if you start a church and you've got an organ on one side and you've got a piano on the other side, you're going to be kind of limited in today's world as to to who you're reaching. I think you always need to think about how you're presenting and, and, and all of that. But Paul says their eyes are blind. So how are their eyes opened? Well, there on your outline in Ephesians, Paul, Paul says this. He says, 
What song was it? Is that a Beach Boys song? Barbara Ann. Barbara Ann's a Beach Boys song, isn't it? Yeah. Well, th thank you for sharing that with us. Today. <laughs> All right, so how are their eyes open? How are their eyes open? Well, there on your outline, it says, I pray, underline those two words, I pray that the eyes of your heart, or if you have the King James, it said the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened so that you will know what the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints. So the way that the eyes are open is not through better marketing. It's not through uh, a better presentation or a better argument. Eyes are open spiritually, and Paul says, I pray, I pray. I want to encourage you to have a list of people, probably between 8 and 15 people who are in your world that you pray for every single day that their eyes would be open, that their spiritual eyes would be open. There's a, a group of people that I pray for. I've written down their names, and every day I pray for those people. And when they come to the Lord, I'm able to add somebody else to the list. But that's how it happens. That's how it happens. Not by being more cool, but by their eyes being open. Verse 5, he says, for we, now remember, now Paul's talking about, here's how I see ministry being done, and uh, here's how we did it. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So go ahead and write this down. Uh, authentic ministry leaves no room for self-promotion. No room for self-promotion. Paul was doing it very differently than the other ministers that he saw. And I, for, for me, and, and I'm going to be very careful what I say, I think it's weird when I drive by a church and I notice that their website is the pastor's name and you see all of their publications all feature the pastor. Everything goes to the pastor as though it's all about the pastor. I'm very wary of that form of ministry. And so Paul says, for us, we only preach Christ. We point to him. We don't point to ourselves. And then in verse 5, he says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Apparently, the false teachers didn't see themselves as servants of the people of God. They saw the people of God as servants to them as they pointed everybody to themselves. Does that make sense? Verse 6, he says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, the idea that the veil was lifted, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then he says, But here's how this works. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Let me read that verse again. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that's you and I, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The, the idea here is that if you were to look up that word where it talks about earthen vessels, some of your Bibles say jars of clay, and they're, 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 both, they're both right. If you look up that word in the original language, it's going, to, you're gonna, uh, it's going to give you the word common, common earthenware. So the, the pots, the vessels that it's talking about come in all different shapes and sizes. And 
And Paul says it's not the vessel. That's not the treasure. The treasure is in the vessel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So the vessel, the clay pot, is, is just pottery. And God can use whatever he wants. But he's, he's made it in such a way so that it will be used for just what it is that he wants to do. So Paul is saying, don't focus in on the pot. Focus in on the treasure that's inside the, the earthen vessel. Apparently, the false teachers, as they were preaching themselves, were beginning to focus in on the fact that there was something special about them. And Paul's saying there's nothing special about them. The treasure is in them, but they are not the treasure. You and I are not the treasure, but we're the, the vessel that God wants to use. Does that make sense? What's also in that is that word common. Um, if you look that word up in the original language, God loves to use very, very common things. The lie that, that we believe is that God can't use us because we're not special like somebody else. We could all point to somebody else. The truth is God doesn't look for special people to use. And, and the reason for that, he likes to use very, very common people so that when he does something in them, nobody says, well, of course he used you. Look how amazing you are. Everybody looks and says, God is amazing because look, he can, he can use you. He can use me. And that, that's the idea. So when, when you go through the Bible and you look at the stories, the story of Gideon. Where does God find him? Oh, he's hiding. He's not the guy who's known to be the great warrior. You have David. When David is coronated as the king, the prophet shows up and uh, goes through all the brothers in David's family. And uh, finally the prophet says, well, do you have anybody else? There's, there's got to be somebody else. And everybody in the family's like, well, we got this one kid, but he's definitely not the king material that you're looking for. So they bring him, and God says, that's the one. Why? Because he was so common. Nobody expected it from him. So God loves to use very, very common things. So be very, very careful of looking at the earthen vessel as though that's something. It's the treasure inside. That's what's something. By the way, even when Jesus came to the earth, when it talked about him coming to the earth back in Isaiah in the future, 700 years in the future, it, it described him this way before he's even born. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. God chose that Jesus would just come to the earth and be just a very, very normal looking person, very normal, uh, which is probably why Jesus looks nothing like any of the pictures that we see of him. Because he's always very good looking, isn't he? And in shape and all that. Yeah, it's, it's, so, so he probably looks very, 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 very different. So Paul says, so you're questioning my ministry and um, you know, you're thinking that I'm not all that great. And he said, I'm not. It's the treasure in me. And, uh, and, and you're saying things about me. He says, let me, let me just tell you, uh, as, as you're exalting these earthen pots, and you're thinking there's something very special. He says, let me tell you how the ministry has worked out for me. And uh, we'll read it and then we'll unpack it. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. He says, here's how it's worked out for us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we, 
who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then Paul says something, and many Bible scholars believe he's being somewhat sarcastic. He says, so death works in us, but, but life in you. And why would he say that? The false teachers in that time, let me say that again, the false teachers in that time were saying things like, you know, if you are really in the center of God's will and you're really doing God's work, then the way that that's going to work, you're going to know because everything's just going to go very smoothly. And as long as you stay in God's work, everything's just going to happen the way it's supposed to be. It's going to be blessing, blessing, blessing. But when you come to the place and you realize that maybe that blessing is being pulled away, it probably means that you're in sin of some sort, because if you weren't in sin, of course, everything would be working out. Or maybe you've drifted a little bit from God's path. And so you're, you're out of God's will, because if you were in his will, everything would be working out fine. Any, anybody ever heard anything like that? Absolutely. We've, we've all heard that. If not, haven't we thought that at some point when we were going through some difficulty, that it might be that I'm just outside of God's will. Maybe that's why I'm facing it. Because deep down, we all feel like if I'm in God's will, everything should be going smoothly. Well, Paul says, no, you're looking at the earthen pot as the, the great thing. It's the treasure inside. He says, but let me tell you what an authentic ministry, maybe an authentic minister looks like and how it's revealed. And it's very different than what they were looking at. Go ahead and write this down. It's going to be revealed more by scars than stars. Paul's gone through some very, very difficult times. And so because of the difficult times and because it's been very difficult, um, verse Verse 13, he says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. So here, and write this down, I probably should have said it a little bit differently, but number 10, we notice in authentic ministry is that the authentic minister chooses to trust God in difficulty. Paul's just said, here's how bad it is. And then in verse 13, he says, he says, but having the same spirit of faith, this is my response to it, he says, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we also speak. So maybe it would have been better if I had you write down something like, in, in difficulty, the, the authentic minister speaks faith, or speaks faith in, in, in difficulty. I... I love this verse because what Paul is teaching is that in a very difficult time, that's the time to begin speaking faith. Now, um, so, so here's how this works. Here's how this works. And we'll, we'll talk about this more in, in a couple of chapters. You're going through a situation and your situation says this, but your Bible says this. And so you choose to believe what is written, what the Bible says. And so you believe that against all of your circumstances. That's what activates faith. So far, so good. Now, it's also important when Paul says that in verse 13, he says, having the same spirit of faith according to what is written. What he's quoting now was written back in the Old Testament. He says, I believed, therefore I spoke. What I believed, I spoke. And so Paul's speaking of professing what he believes. 
Now, you've probably noticed that that verse is written a little bit differently. The, 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 the font changes, and that's because it's quoting from the Old Testament. If you have a study Bible, you need to look at where that verse is in the Old Testament and Psalms. And later on today, go look at that verse and uh, see what the psalmist has decided to profess. And uh, you might find it interesting because it's not positive. So at least you'll look it up, right? So there, I'm not going to tell you. Where was I? Oh, so here, so, so here and, and by the way, I have this as one of my, my promises that I go through every day, but, but um, the question is, so what does Paul, the uh, authentic minister there on your outline, what does he choose to believe and speak? Well, in verse 14, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So, so here, here's the question. Does Paul begin to confess and profess for a new car, a new house, for wealth? Is that what he's confessing? Well, let me read verse 14 again. He says, I believe, therefore I spoke, so we also believe, and so we also speak. Here's what we're saying. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Here's what he confessed. In his difficult situation, he confessed that God, under, uh, write this down, that God would have the ultimate victory. That was his confession. Verse 15, he goes on and he says, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading, underline that, spreading to more and more people, more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So Paul continues his confession And uh, he says, in this difficulty, I'm confessing that God will use this difficulty to save others. Write that down. It's interesting how God has a way of using difficulty in our lives. Verse 16, he continues on with his profession. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for our momentary Light affliction is producing for us, and here's this profession, an eternal weight, underline that, of glory, far beyond all comparison. Paul would say, yes, it's been a very difficult time, but here's what I'm professing. I'm professing that my trials are working for me. He professed that his trials are working for him. However, you write that down. An authentic minister does that. Interesting to me, Paul says, what I'm going through right now is producing an eternal weight of glory. And the idea is that Paul didn't see the fact of him, that Paul didn't see his difficulty as meaning that he was a failure in life, a failure in ministry, or that he was outside of God's will. He saw his difficulty as God using that to do something for him in eternity. Verse 18, he says, while we look at the things which are seen, we look not at the things which are seen, rather, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so Paul says, so in my current difficulty, and he's just laid out what he's been going through, in his current difficulty, write this down, Paul focused on eternity. What I'm facing right now is temporal, it's not eternal. I'll focus in on the eternal. So as we went through 
some of the things were, were Paul's putting his ministry versus some of the things that, that he saw. Here at, at, at Calvary, we always seek to do ministry the way that we saw Paul doing ministry. Um, don't tell me what, and don't shout it out. But when we went through some of those things that the false teachers were doing or not doing, did anything pop in your mind from places that you've been? Anything at all? See, head shaking. Okay. And there better be nothing that pops in your mind about how we do things here. <laughs> but if there is, let us know, because we don't ever want to do that. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And uh, thank you for this 4th of July weekend. Thank you for the freedoms that we have, that we do get to come here and worship you. Lord, help us to live lives in keeping uh, that always point people to you and also with the great responsibility that comes with having the freedoms that we have. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.